Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Chad Randall, one of the editors of Playing Place, Board Games, Popular Culture, Space. The publisher is MIT Press. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five stars review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your very choice. You're more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify, too. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now back to the show. Board games harness the creation of entirely new worlds. From the medieval warlord to the modern urban planner, players are permitted to inhabit a staggering variety of roles and are prompted to incorporate pre-existing notions of placemaking into their decisions. Today, we will learn so much more about this topic. Chad, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. I appreciate uh, your interest and uh, having us on today. Yeah. I wonder if you could could begin um, the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I'm an architectural historian in the United States. I've always been interested in where architecture and landscapes and the built environment overlap with popular culture. So some of my past work has involved exploring the rise and fall of, of cultural ideas or architectural ideas within within culture, within popular culture. Uh, so the weaving of, of a design as it, or a design idea as it rises uh, through maybe a vernacular world into a sort of high design world, then to a mass market world, and then it, and I, that idea becomes cliche and, um, you know, uh, sort of fades in interest amongst uh, the larger audience and it disappears and then reemerges again, perhaps uh, in the future. So I've done 
projects on triangular vacation homes, uh, A-frame vacation homes that sort of followed this trajectory, and shag carpet, uh, another material that had a heyday and then disappeared, uh, and other other work like that. I've looked at uh, home the history of home improvement in the United States. And so all of these projects are sort of tied together by an interest in the way that, as I said, popular culture and architecture intersect and overlap and what we can learn from each of those fields about what each of those fields teaches us about the other fields. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we have to check for your Ludo street credibility. <laughs> Please tell us. <laughs> What's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now? Sure. So I started as a kid, like many children, I played Monopoly and Sorry and some of the mass market games in the United States. But when we had visitors from Denmark back in around 2022, they brought along a game called Settlers of Catan. Uh, and we They introduced that game to my wife and I, and we started playing it. I went to a game store. I didn't know that such game stores existed, but I went to a game store and found a game called Carcassonne, and that has been uh, our most played game. I think in the in the intervening time, we keep returning to it again and again. We're a competitive couple, and we like to beat each other, so sometimes we have to set it aside because it, it can be a very uh, frustrating game at the same time when you're um, blocking each other or thwarting others' ambitions and expanding their town. So I'd have to say it's probably uh, the game Carcassonne, a tile-laying game uh, that that we return to again and again. I also like a, a, a series called uh, uh, Commands and Colors, which has various uh, theaters where it's uh, enacted from uh, samurai battles to uh, ancient uh, war Fair and uh, Napoleonics and and so on. So I I play have played that for a number of years with a friend that I haven't actually met in person, but we play on uh, a platform called Vassal where we exchange email moves every few days. And so I know he's somewhere out in Arizona and I'm uh, in New York and we we've played these games over the years by exchanging email emails. Oh, so I, I'd say I'd rather um, rate your Ludo Street credibility pretty high then. <laughs> Fairly. I mean, I like to play, I like, I like to think I like very complex and uh, deep games and I can, I can tackle them, but I seem to return to the, the um, games that can be played in an evening or in, in an hour, a couple hours. Now, um, your book playing place, Uh, playing place delves into the intriguing relationship between board games and the built environment. So what inspired you to explore this unique intersection of gaming and architecture? Well, your introduction sort of addressed some of this, right? I, I was intrigued as I got into especially Euro games. I was intrigued by the way that architectural and Uh, building themes kept appearing and uh, emerging through the through these games right on boards there are maps and floor plans and streetscapes and trade networks that are represented uh, players are asked to be landlords or developers or architects or farmers or queens or 
princes uh, and game mechanics have us um, building structures and expanding cities and buying and selling properties, taking over territories. Uh, they have us moving cars and trains and goods across landscapes and so on. So there's this constant interaction with um, with representations of landscapes and, and place that sort of um, resonated with me and my interests in architecture and and urban planning and so on. So I was curious about why why designers kept returning to these themes. What what was it about these themes that that attracted consumers, that attracted game players, right? Because in the end, all of these games are made. Well, most of these games are made to be uh, bought, and so game designers, game publishers have to be attuned to what the public is interested in. So if there are all of these games with these sorts of themes, the public must be interested in it. And what, what is it about these games that, that gets people interested, get, that gets them to spend their money and, and spend their evenings or afternoons with gathering with friends and family, reenacting these sorts of uh, engagements with, with places. So that sort of got me attuned to this. It probably pushed my interest in games and expanded my own game collection. Uh, my colleague and co-editor, Medina Lasansky, who teaches uh, at Cornell University, has a class called Archi Archipop, where she explores popular culture themes and architecture. And that can be James Bond movies. It can be cartoons. Many of the different ways that that uh, popular culture and architecture intersect. But she was, um, she, so she was interested in developing and identifying readings that she could have her students explore uh, on this topic. And there there weren't a whole lot. So she thought, well, let's make our own and and uh, see what's out there. So where this all came together, though, is that we living in upstate New York, about five hours from New York City, and a couple of hours further uh, past us is a town called a city called Rochester that has the Strong Museum, which is a museum of play. And the, in their archives, in their basement uh, rolling shelves, they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of board games. I think it's something like 10,000 board games. And for a, a board game geek, going down into this archive was sort of uh, an, an incredible experience. It was like one had died and gone to heaven. It was the ultimate sort of game cave, right? So when we when we saw that place and when we encountered the, worked with some of the curators that are are there, uh, we we knew this project had to go forward, and we we wanted to to see what it could it could uh, what it could come up with, what we could come up with uh, uh, looking at these topics. Yeah, and this is uh, <clears throat> actually building a perfect bridge to my next question because the collection of essays in the book covers a wide, wide range of topics related to board games and, of course, their impact on perceptions of space. Um, could you share a few examples of essays that particularly stood out to you and why they were significant contributions to the uh, to this very volume? Sure. So, yeah, you mentioned that, that there's a wide range of, of topics and a, a large number of essays. So there's 35 essays in the book. Um, yet it's it's still a fairly concise book. The essays range from about 800 to 1,000 words, and they are authored by a great collection of scholars and thinkers and uh, writers, people that are interested in board games, people that are interested in architecture, people from game studies, the game studies world, people from architectural history, landscape architecture, um, 
and and people that just have we we encountered and, and came across who have uh, thought about these issues and have been interested in them. So it, it's it's a difficult question to answer because of, of this the range of essays and topics that are included. Uh, just for by way of example, I can talk about a, a few. Abigail Van Slick wrote a essay about Buffalo Bill games that were released in the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, that um, celebrated this character, this mythological character of Buffalo Bill, but at the same time sort of perpetuated notions about what the frontier was. Uh, this It presented or set up the frontier as a sort of play space, a place where you know nothing really bad can happen, but uh, at the same time, notions of what it means to be a sort of American or a white uh, settler in North America and, and uh, controlling or, or um, dominating that landscape is enacted and in some ways sort of perpetuated, in some ways uh, reinforced, right? So it, it normalizes or uh, extends these mythologies uh, on the game on the game space. And at the same time is this kind of playful enactment, right? Nothing really hap- happens to the buffaloes. The buffalo are captured. They're not killed, right? And and the other um, nasty aspects of, of the settlement of the North American continent are sort of swept under the rug, are, are minimized, are, are diminished in, in these representations. Uh, some of our essays, many of our essays engage with with games that present a historical environment or historic narrative, but the essays bring the story or bring the conversation back to the present and engage with the way that that past is is understood today or interpreted today. Um, some of our essays look at, for example, Miley Hutter's essay on Pillars of the Earth, the Pillars of the Earth game, right, based on Ken Follett's novels. Uh, she talks about the architectural history of cathedrals through the lens of that game. And the intent isn't to question the accuracy of the game itself or take down the game and say, well, that's not really how cathedrals were built or that's not really how it happened, but to explore through the game what is highlighted in the game about cathedral building, about the the importance of these uh, cathedrals on the European landscape, right? What's highlighted, what's omitted in the game? What did the game designer leave out and what did they think it was important to include? So I like essays like that, especially too, because there's this sort of multiple levels of interpretation going on and multiple media forms, right? It's a book, it's also a board game. It's also a piece of architecture. It's a inhabitable, occupiable uh, space. So our authors, and, and this is just sort of a very thin, narrow slice of, of what our authors are engaged in. They're looking at the ways that placemaking uh, contributes to community identity. Elizabeth LaPense and Kenichukwu Obuagu. Uh, from Nigeria explore these very issues. In the case of Elizabeth, looking at landscapes of nourishment and spatial and spiritual memory amongst uh, indigenous groups in North America. And in the case of uh, Kenichukwu, the shared experience of drivers on the Nigerian 
road network and how that creates a sense of shared experience and shared understanding of, in some ways, what it means to live as a Nigerian in, in uh, the 21st century. Uh, so again, the, the games sort of the games are that we explore, and we can talk a little bit about that in, in the future, uh, are broad ranging. The authors take up a broad range of, of lenses to, to look at these games. And in some ways, they're, they were only scratching the surface, right? There are just way too many games out there. Our remit, our, our attempts to explore this uh, topic can only be superficial because of the depth of and range of, of games that are out there when we're looking at it across time, across country, uh, or across across the globe, really, uh, in trying to get at some of the ways that place and space and board games and play and architecture and design and so on all overlap. Yeah. And I really have to say, uh, I got the book right next to me right now, and it's She's a Beauty, and I mean it because no, thanks. most of the times I really, um, you know how it is. These these books normally they're a bit dry and the layout is so, uh, let's say, uh, what we call in German, funktional. Uh -huh. So <laughs> this is really a beauty and it's, the colors are really popping. It's really great. It also makes really, it's entertaining. You, 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 you need to pick it up and you need to open it. It's really great. So the question therefore is... Can you probably elaborate on how the essays in playing uh, playing place managed to strike this 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 fine balance between being informative and entertaining for readers interested in both architecture and board games? Okay, cool. So this is a this is an interesting question because in something we grappled with uh, very early on in the project, it started out as a more traditional architectural history scholarly approach to the topic. And we were going to have eight or nine essays of eight or 9,000 words. And a couple of things happened. First, we realized when we dug into that strong collection that there were just so many games out there and so many topics that we didn't, we didn't want to leave as much behind as we would have had to in, in such a uh, focused in-depth treatment of the subject. So we, we decided on a different format, a much, much shorter essays. As I mentioned, they were, they're usually a thousand words to the max. They um, often don't have citations. They are um, sometimes reminiscing, remin personal reminiscences. Sometimes they're a little bit more uh, steeped in archival work. Sometimes they um, are, are just cutting the, the, in on, on a narrow issue related to the game, and sometimes they try to bring in a number of different games. So we, we tried to stay quite open in, in the approach so that we could sit in that middle zone between those that are interested in, in games, the hobbyists, game scholars, and so on. And hobbyists are super reflective about and uh, about their hobby, about their interests. They're a very curious group. Anybody that's been to some of the Board Game Geek forums, the website Board Game Geek, um, know that reading lists and debates about the sort of interaction of the game and the, the subject, especially if it's a historical subject, is a topic of great interest. So we wanted to appeal to those people and, and, and um, incorporate some of the perspectives of the gamer, at the same time not losing those interested in design, architecture, city planning, landscape history, and so on, that take into a topic, a certain understanding of place, a certain uh, uh, interpretive 
strategies for looking at space and looking at objects and so on. And so I th we thought that the emphasis on these short essays that we borrow from a, a website called Platform that specializes in these concise uh, studies of architecture and, and place and so on in, again, a thousand word uh, format. And that argues, I think, that you can still have a sort of penetrating interpretation, a, a, a real exploration of, of a topic uh, in uh, in a consensus essay, right, in something short and tight. Uh, we thought these this this format that could provide a taster, a sort of provocation, a um, space to open up the conversation and, and ask sometimes more questions than, than we're able to answer. We thought that that format would be a, a good way to bring people into the, the topic and, and try to bring everybody along from these different uh, areas. The other thing that happened though, was that COVID happened and it was a hard lift to ask people to do lengthy in-depth essays at a time when archives were closed. It was hard to get to places. It was hard to uh, get around. And so the format and our uh, approach to a bunch of different authors, a number of different scholars and writers and so on, uh, worked well for the topic because I think people were, were more willing to do a, a shorter dive into a topic than, than what they might have been able to do uh, during normal times. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Now, Barbara Penner, professor of architectural humanities, described the book as a banquet of board games and architecture that leaps across time, space, cultures, and players. Wow, that's that's a lot to cover. A lot to cover. <laughs> so, uh, maybe uh, you could discuss some of the diverse cultural and historical contexts explored in the essays and how they contribute to the book's overarching uh, narrative. Okay. So for a small book, the the book has an ambitious range, right? And I've touched on that a little bit already, the types of uh, people we had writing and contributing to the book, the range of, of games. There are historic games that treat historic subjects. So games from the 19th century that are commenting on even earlier time periods. There are games that are not yet released, covered in the in the book. So games that are still under development. We cover well-known games like Clue and Monopoly. Monopoly doesn't have its own dedicated essay, but it, by its very nature, works its way into these sorts of, of discussions. And so for a, 
small, relatively small book, the game has an ambitious range of topics. We've touched on this a little bit already. It covers historic games from the 19th century that themselves are talking about or exploring historic themes. It includes games that haven't been released yet that are still under development. We cover well-known games like Clue and Monopoly. Monopoly doesn't have its own dedicated essay, but it invariably works its way into conversations and, and uh, explorations of the topic in this nature, of this nature, oftentimes because it's what the public, at least the Western in the Western world thinks of when they think about board games. Uh, we look at Euro games and the rise of Euro games because this is where many of these explorations of place and, and space occur. Games like Catan, games like Carcassonne. Uh, we also found through either the Strong Collection or through our author's individual research, obscure games, games that didn't hit the mark, didn't become the mass market sellers that go through iteration and iteration, edition after edition, published in in a hundred different languages, right? And, and in some ways, these obscure games that either failed or were never really meant for a mass market uh, also tell interesting stories or engage their topic in in interesting ways. I, I, um, in my own research, tried to find, I found a reference to a game by the uh, United States uh, Housing Authority that was intending, intended to train their employees on certain ways in which the laws were working at the time or certain new initiatives were intended to function. And I just found it in a journal directed towards those uh, employees, but I never was able to find the actual game itself. Um, so the the games take on, or the topics uh, covered in the games are, are quite broad. We're looking at games that are selling things like Disney World and the Disney experience and Disney movies and, and shows and so on. Uh, we're, we looked at didactic games that are intended to teach or educate um, or bring forth a certain understanding, uh, indoctrinate is, is perhaps a different way of, of uh, phrasing this. So the games um, and the essays that are covered, or the, the games that are covered in these essays do, um, do stretch broad and, and wide, but what, keep, what kept coming back and what our authors sort of uh, return to, you mentioned a, a sort of overall narrative arc of the book. I think what they return to again and again and again is that games are that provide this forum, uh, a zone, a magic circle that uh, has low stakes, that has people disarmed, that has people sort of opened and willing to explore new ideas, willing to play, willing to sort of set their professional identities aside, maybe set aside their own biases or their own assumptions about a topic and um, enter into those worlds. And I think that creates uh, fruitful new understandings of the topics that are that are taken up in the games and the ways that, that we think about them as players, as larger 
um, as as part of a larger culture, right? Uh, we consume these games, we go and buy them, uh, and maybe we don't even think about what the theme is. But I think those those themes sort of come through in the games, whether it's through the rules, whether it's through the maps and uh, settings that are on the boards, whether it's through the meeples or the characters and pieces that we move around on the boards. So there's this sort of combination of of ideas and the tactility of the game the social environment in which we are situated that that is a disarming one that provides uh sort of interesting uh zone or area through which to to explore these these other topics that that sometimes are are given more weight or given uh more gravity i think when we when we approach them explicitly or exclusively through a, a sort of academic lens. Hmm. Well, speaking of, and see my air quotes here, the job and duty, the pleasures of editing, um, playing a place, as you have uh, explained, does offer a convergence of different fields such as architectural history and media studies scholarship, for example. I wonder, how did you go about selecting and organizing the essays then to create a cohesive narrative, as you have just mentioned, that encompasses all these different academic fields? Because this sounds like a, a tremendous uh, and giant job. So the there were topics that we knew we wanted covered that... Um, I was interested in games that I had heard about or even played. There were topics that Medina encountered in her Archipop class that she wanted to, she thought were important and would be important to include in the collection. There were scholars that we've read or taught in the past that had a certain sensibility and familiarity with uh, popular cultural topics or architectural topics that we uh, wanted to hear from and wanted to in include and per perspectives that we wanted to include. So we did reach out to a number of, of authors and, and either proposed games that they might be interested in exploring that overlapped with their interests or more broadly just said, this is what we're working on. This is the, this is the project where we've taken on, are there approaches that, that you might be interested in exploring? We also did a call in analog game studies and in uh, other venues online that solicited uh, and and through those received uh, some proposals that, that we took on as essays. The way, though, that it came together was kind of like a conference comes together. We get essays in or we get proposals for talks in and we group them together. We had a certain set of, of themes that we thought were important, but then through that solicitation process, through the call for proposals, we had new ideas that, that our contributors came in with. So those sort of fell into these uh, eight themes, eight groupings that uh, we've sorted the essays into in the, in the table of contents. But uh, the reality is a lot of these, the essays do address the, the sort of shared overlap between the game that they're taking up or the the group of games that they're taking up and popular understandings of place popular experiences with with uh space and and uh, the exploration of that well, given the uh, the relevance of the book's themes to various academic disciplines um could you discuss how playing place might serve as a 
as a resource for educators, researchers, and students uh, alike interested in exploring the intersection of board games, architecture, and urban culture in their own work or studies? Sure. So one of Medina's objectives was to get games and popular culture more um, situated or established within the field of, of architectural history as a serious topic. Of course, game scholars and people that are working in game studies, this is already a sort of uh, assumption, right? That, that games are a valid, worthy topic of study. Uh, uh, they are tools through which and, and media forms and texts through which we can understand the world, whether it's the past or the present. But uh, Medina uh, feels strongly that, that architectural history can learn much from the ways that uh, architecture is is reflected in popular culture and popular attitudes towards design. Uh, we also wanted to um, show the range of games that are out there, right? And even with 35 essays, I mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're, bare, we're barely scratching the surface. And we, if we had had more time and maybe a little bit more energy, we could have had 70 essays or or more, right? There are just so many interesting games out there that that uh, that are related to to these issues that have players doing things that that either have embedded within them assumptions about place or create uh, a zone through which place can can be explored. Uh, so I think just showing the the range of games that are out there, past and present, I think helps with with um, you know setting up games as a as a resource, there are there's a section of the book that actually has uh, essays about the ways that board games are used for uh, pedagogical functions and and for teaching, uh, establishing. Um, engagements with the community and democratic space through through board games. Uh, using cities themselves as board games and using board games to workshop understandings of heritage and and uh and culture so that's another way i think that that the the book can can be of service well chad we've taken up a lot of your time now please uh, what are you working on right now and of course what will you be playing next Well, as soon as the book got done, I, as soon as we finished the book, I encountered some other games and I was thinking, oh, these would be make really good uh, topics for essays. And, and you know, the book has a deadline and things have to go off to, to printers and, and so on. So I'm interested in continuing to explore some of the themes that maybe we didn't get to in, in the book, maybe in, in short essays, maybe in something a little bit longer. Just this morning, I was punching out a game called John Company that uh, explores a sort of explores the British East India Company through the lens of individuals that are managers of, of that company. And I was thinking about, as I was playing that or looking through that game, I was thinking about another game that I recently played called Obsession. And both of these have as shared objectives, the acquisition of an English manor house, right? The kind of down, Downton Abbey kind of manor house with all of the servants and the um, bowling greens and the dining rooms and the conservatories and all of the other sort of uh, accompaniments to that, right? As a sign of status, as a sign of, of success, right? So I was interested in, I'm interested in the way that that, 
that architectural form has woven its way into popular cultural understandings of achievement and accomplishment and uh, the ways that that was used historically to establish one's reputation and status and how that um, is is still a part of the way that we think about architecture today, even though you know very few people live in, in those those places. Uh, I'm also interested in the history of flight simulations. So I I have presented on that in the past, and I'd be interested in continuing to explore um, the the space of flight simulation, whether it's in a cockpit that somebody constructs in their own basement or just sitting at a, a computer, and then going back to the longer history of that, how simulation. Uh, was enacted and served uh, to train pilots to uh, do so in a in a sort of safe environment, and how again that filters into or or uh, reflect in certain understandings of how landscapes were viewed, how uh, aviation and the landscape and landscapes work together, the aerial perspective functions and is recreated through uh, computer representations and so on. Well, that sounds like a great project. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. And um, I really enjoyed it um, again. I did too. Thank you. Very lovely book cover. Can't get enough. It's really next to my window now. I'm moving it around just to have some joy sparking in my eye. And so, um, Chad, take care and goodbye. Thanks very much. I appreciate your interest again and hope to see you sometime uh, maybe across a game table. Yes. So, dear listeners, I hope you really like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies or analog game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolfindust at googlemail.com. I can also, I can found practically anywhere. So, alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. Um, please share this episode where you see fit again and see you in a bit what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation where it's not about mission statements but a shared mission At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.